Welcome to the Doe Valley Ministry Podcast, where you can find faithful teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Here's this week's message. This morning, we're looking at the mystery of His will, the mystery of God's will for us. And we're going to look at specifically Scripture verses, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. We're going to look at the redemption in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who were first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory." In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The word of God for us this morning. One of the things I say frequently is uh, context, context, contents, context. I'm always reminding people to read and study the scriptures in their context. But at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'm going to do it again. You might be able to read a, a novel without its context, but not the Bible. Besides the... the <laughs> The next time you do read a novel, what is the very first thing the author will do? He or she will establish the characters and set the background for the story. In other words, they give you the context for what you are reading. Now, the Bible doesn't always do that, so sometimes it requires us to do a little detective work in order to figure it out. Considering Scripture in its context will make its study that much richer and certainly better. As you might imagine, there is a context to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, especially the portion we just read a few minutes ago. Some things are going on in the background, and once we realize what they are, it enables us to make better sense of Paul's comments. So let's talk about that here for a minute this morning. Paul, along with many other leaders in the early Christian church, was struggling with a movement called Gnosticism. No doubt you've heard the term, you've heard of it before, but let me give you a very general idea of what it's about. 
Gnosticism denied that earthly things are of importance to God. From that idea, they moved to the illogical conclusion that the Jesus who died on the cross was a man of only physical matter and was not the exalted one who provides salvation. In other words, the Gnostics had a hard time with the idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man. They preferred the fully God part. There was one problem that was one problem that Paul had to deal with. Another had to do with a group of people Paul was constantly having to confront. He called them Judaizers. They were Christians from a Jewish background, like Paul, and who also allowed for Gentiles to be accepted into the church, as Paul did. However, they demanded that such people first become Jews and adhere strictly to the Jewish laws. And that was very much unlike Paul. They followed Paul everywhere he went, and upon his leaving a church would try to undo and undermine much of what he had accomplished. And finally, there was another group that opposed the apostle, and those were the people that we just call the false teachers. Why would Paul label them with such a negative connotation? Well, they claimed ownership of a special instruction given only to a privileged few, and they guarded these secrets zealously. If Paul claimed nothing else, he advocated a gospel that was freely given to all and not just those who were fortunate enough to be let in on the secret. So that's a lot of conflict. However, Paul was not the type to give up easily. Yet rather than rail against such opposition and heresy, Paul chooses, at least in this case, to take the high road and put his comments to the Ephesian church in the form of praise and adoration of God. He inspires and encourages his readers to journey that high road with him, by showing them how God has included them in his final and eternal plan for the world. He opens his letter to the Ephesian church on a magnificent note of jubilation with an outburst of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We see right away in verse 3. Now, there were times when Paul would begin a letter with such praise and then pretty quickly slide into more practical matters. Take a look at uh, his letters to the Corinthian church, for example. Uh, a, the, the epistle to the Galatians. No slide at all. No adoration followed by a gradual movement toward addressing his complaints toward them. He runs headlong into the problems, and they had a lot. And Paul uses pretty strong language as well. But not here, not to the Ephesians. Paul stays on the exalted plane until the fourth chapter where he does address the Ephesians' particular circumstances. Why do he do this? Well, evidently, Paul wants them to understand their circumstances. So he explains and describes God's larger picture for their lives. Paul is giving them context. Why is that so important? And why should we even bother with Paul's context? How many people have ever, here have ever even met a Gnostic or a Judaizer or a false teacher? But here's the point. Paul's context 
and that of the people in the Ephesian church doesn't translate into our world and our time because it is based on their culture, the day and time in which they lived. But Paul's message does speak to us regardless of how different our culture is from his. Paul's context is less important to us than our own, but it is very important for us to consider how Scripture impacts who we are, where we are, what we are doing, and the issues that confront us. That's our context, our culture. And if the Bible is to have anything to say to us, we have to allow it to be embedded in who we are in the experiences that confront us every day. Paul is providing the Ephesians their reason for being. He is giving them perspective, and perspective is hope. Hope leads to the joy of real faith. And that is why Paul's testimony has survived the ages. The key part of Paul's testimony is verse 5. God destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. God has adopted us. Adoption can be dicey, disappointing, a frustrating process. However, adoption can be a wonderful and joyous thing. No doubt some of us here are familiar with stories of adoption. And that is the context for Paul's great affirmation. God destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, that's a lot of words, and they're nice words, but what does that mean? First of all, understand that Paul knows his letter will be read by uh, or to the entire church during probably during a, a worship service. He himself is thinking of the context in which it will be shared with the congregation. That is why he wants his message to be uplifting. First and foremost, Paul wants it to honor God. Consider our worship. The first thing we do is call ourselves to worship, uh, sing a hymn and a uh, opening hymn and a responsive reading. What are we doing? We are setting the context for our worship, and that is what Paul is doing here. He is giving the people in the Ephesian church their reason for being. Worship and adoration is the appropriate response. Our lives are in God's hands. He then suggests a history whereby the Ephesians might see their place in God's scheme of things. God's eternal purpose has been worked out in human history by Christ's redemptive ministry. It is now being completed in human experience, in which the Ephesians and you and I have a part. Paul then uses this wonderful imagery of God taking this messy world of ours and one day gathering it up into himself, asking you and me to be part of that gathering. See, one day God will take the mess out of this world, gather it all up unto himself, and in his mercy and grace make of it just what he wants it to be. Paul says that you and I will be a part of that redemption. It was not a message shared by all. You see, Paul's opponents are claiming that the Gentiles are inferior in their calling to faith in Christ. That's because the Jews had it first, 
they had the final key to the kingdom. Paul is describing God's plans for the Ephesians so that they can see this is not true. All God's children are equal and have a role to play in gathering up all things in him. We are all adopted equally. Becoming and being a Christian is based on what Christ has done for us, not on what we have done. Every spiritual blessing, Paul calls it, our redemption is but a part of God's plan. That final plan is to sum up all things in Christ. The meaning of that word in Greek comes from accounting where you have a column of figures and at the bottom you make a tally by summing them up. Kind of like an Excel spreadsheet today. You have a column of numbers and at the bottom you click the auto sum button and there you go. Paul uses this word to say that one day the universe and all that has happened in it will be explained, summed up, tallied. And Jesus is that bottom line. He says it is an open secret, a scandal to those who refuse to understand, a mystery even to those who do. But someday God will explain and his creation will come to completion. But we don't live in the someday, we live in the meantime. And in the meantime, God's saving design continues to touch our human experience. Again, Paul explains it in the context of history. The Jewish people first obtained an inheritance. In, a, in other words, they were assigned a role in history, a role not yet given to the Gentiles. Then God sent his only unique son who came in the context of that Jewish heritage, but made his redemption available to all people, thus linking past history with future history. Paul then says this activity was sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he uses the word pledge or deposit in verse 14. The Greek word is a term for a down payment or first installment on a loan. Our inheritance has been sealed by this down payment, paid for by Jesus, established through the Holy Spirit. That down payment will seal the deal until we acquire full possession of it when all things will be gathered up at the time of God's choosing. When will the final payment be made? Only God knows. Paul is saying that God will tell us when the world is paid for. So when he writes his letter to the Ephesians, Paul talks about their final redemption, the final redemption of the world that has already been initiated in the offer of forgiveness and new life through Christ's atoning life and death, has been sealed by the activity of the Holy Spirit and is awaiting God's final decree of purpose for his creation. Yes, we live in a now and not yet world. That is our context. So what do we do? We wait patiently, hopefully, actively seeking to be the presence of Christ right where we live, all the while believing that God is in control and will tell us when the world is paid for. But the end is not in doubt for those who believe. 
Paul says the Holy Spirit lives in the church, continuing to guarantee God's promise to his people and all his creation. And that is indeed a reason for the jubilation he feels and expresses at the beginning of this letter. Paul encourages us to join with him in celebrating God's plan, the mystery of his will. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of God's glory. That is indeed a pretty good context, don't you think? Even if it is a mystery. Let us close with prayer this morning. Father, make known in us and to us the mystery of your will. Then give us the courage to share it with others and carry out your will in this world. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.